Look with me in the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1. It's kind of interesting. We just finished Obadiah. And Obadiah, what is, the, what is one of the main emphasis throughout the entirety of the book, specifically the first 14 verses? Do you recall? There's 21 verses in Obadiah. The of the minor prophets, the shortest of all the Old Testament books. And the first 14 verses specifically deal with this. What is it? No, Obadiah. Now, I know Roberto preached last week and gave you one week off, but we spent weeks in Obadiah. So what is the emphasis of Obadiah? You don't recall? No, you're close. Yes, God's judgment upon Edom. God's judgment upon Edom, and that's so pronounced throughout the book. And then we see in the latter verses 15 through 21 of second division of the, of the prophecy, that God still pronounces judgment upon Edom, calling them out, but it ex- his judgment extends to all nations, not just Edom. It actually extends to all of the people, all the heathen. And then, it clo- remember, it concluded with saying, of course, or Obadiah, through God prophesying through Obadiah, that the kingdom is the Lord's. Remember that? How that he is, it, it all belongs to him. He is king and he will rule and reign eternally. And so in the end, despite these matters and so we saw God's judgment we saw God's wrath upon them, his declared wrath declared judgment upon them that of, of uh, obviously he declared as well as hatred of Edom as we know throughout uh, Malachi Jeremiah I believe uh, there's other prophecies as well which we looked at and so God declared this judgment and his hatred over them and how he had cursed them forever in Malachi if you recall with me now I say all that to say, leaving Obadiah, we concluded our study of Obadiah in which you find, again, the wrath and judgment of God declared. And now we're moving forward to Ruth. And in Ruth, we see really the exact opposite. Rather than the emphasis being on God's wrath or God's hatred or God's judgment, and I I kind of mentioned this, and I did not intentionally go this route for this reason, but I was thinking of it as we are entering into this book, that uh, you never see God's wrath without seeing his grace, mercy, and love contrasted with, our, with that wrath. And you never, again, see God's love and grace and mercy without it being contrasted by his wrath. And so you don't find one without the other. And this is true as well. This is true eternally, by the way. Because there will be those who are perishing throughout all eternity while there are those who are redeemed in the very presence of our God and our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ in his, in his glory, his love and his mercy while others are under continual suffering of his wrath and that's an eternal condition and so this is an eternal truth but yet here we find in ruth i've actually titled this sometime back and i want to remind you of this and and the book is our study will go somewhat differently as it as it always does years de- uh, over a decade ago we actually studied through ruth it's been a long time and i want to come back to this i think it's beneficial and and as my wife said she said that um in most cases People forget. You already forgot Obadiah, and that was just two weeks ago. So I think I'm safe with Ruth and entering this study again, so I think we'll be okay. Um, but in Ruth, I titled this, and I, I'm, I'm saying because I believe it's important, of Redemption's Love Story, because that's what you really see throughout the book of Ruth. And it's a phenomenal account and, and a, a shadowing, if you will, of God's redemptive work. And, and it's, it's historically, of course, significant for multiple reasons, 
but as well, we glean from it in relation to what God has done through Christ um, for us as well. And we see many, many representations, many uh, of the shadowings, if you will, of Christ and redemption uh, throughout this book. And so let's read Ruth chapter 1, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah, and they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left, and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years. And Malon and Chilion died, also both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Then she rose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return unto the land of Judah. Let's just pause our reading there. And tonight, of course, as always, I want to give you an overview of Ruth. I'm going to look at it from a very broad uh, spectrum or, or, or viewpoint. And I want us to consider several things as we begin to look into this text. It's interesting, first of all, let me mention that uh, the book of Ruth, it, it gives us some detail, but not great detail concerning the events that have brought us to this point in the during this time in history, in which, of course, there was a that was present, and that is of famine and, uh, in, in Bethlehem, Judah. And, and so that being said, uh, we see that the, the stage is being set for the account that is given that there was a famine. Due to the famine, the people, of course, were hungry, the, and, and Elimelech took his family out of Bethlehem, Judah, and went into Moab. And, of course, uh, there they were for the time of uh, the famine. And then, of course, uh, they did return, but not all of them returned. Only in, in the end, as most of you are aware, of course, it was just Naomi and Ruth that actually made the trek back to Bethlehem, Judah. And so there was a crisis that had, had presented itself prior to uh, what we see taking place. It gives us that account saying there was this, this famine and therefore the, the uh, family left. Now, it, it obviously is not very difficult. If you know anything at all about Ruth, the, the, the account of Ruth in Scripture, it is not difficult to understand how that this book of Ruth fits into the big picture of Scripture, the, you know, the, the macro to micro understanding of Scripture. As I often do, I think it's important for us to consider this big picture of Scripture when beginning the study of a book. We know that the big picture consists of the three truths, that Jesus Christ is the primary person of Scripture. Number two, Christ, or God's eternal redemptive purpose is the primary theme of all Scripture. Number three, God's glory is revealed um, that is God's glory revealed is the purpose, uh, primary purpose of, of all Scripture. And so God's glory, the primary purpose, as I've often said to you, is revealed through God's redemptive plan and purpose, the primary theme in Jesus Christ, the primary person. And so the, enti- the t- entire understanding of this big picture of Scripture, of course, helps us to understand how every book and every chapter of every book, every verse of every chapter, and every word of every verse 
actually fits into revealing the glory of God through redemption in Jesus Christ. And, and of course, Christ is the only means by which we have this redemption. And Ruth is a great reminder of that, the book of Ruth, that is. And so it's very important that we, again, acknowledge and recognize these truths. And we see this all unfold within the book of Ruth. The theme of the book of Ruth is that of redemption, obviously. Uh, Mr. Webster defined redemption as 1828 dictionary. Deliverance from bondage, distress, or from liability. But then number two, in theology... The purchase of God's favor by the death and suffering. Deliverance from bondage, as we are aware, I've told you this many times. The emphasis of redemption is that of being bought back, purchased back by God to himself out of the bondage of sin. Uh, Floyd Brackman defined redemption as the act of God whereby, on the basis of Jesus' ransom payment, he releases the gospel believer from bondage to his evil spiritual masters and from the penalty of his sins and brings him into bondage to the Lord Jesus, his benefactor. Now, this is an interesting concept because in redemption, you're being bought back. And in salvation, which redemption is part of that, theologically speaking, And in salvation, you are being delivered from sin, from its power, from its bondage, from its corruption, from from, uh, its penalty and judgment, its condemnation. We are being delivered from this. But it's an interesting concept, as Brackman stated it, because we must ask this question. Why would God deliver us from sin only then to enslave us to himself? And that's really what Scripture teaches us. So we are delivered out of sin, but yet then we are enslaved to God, to Christ, or to righteousness. And I believe the answer is relatively simple. First, God created man for what? For his glory. God created man for his glory, right? Number two, God created man to worship him, and and that is to serve him. To do as he commanded, to submit unto him, to worship him. To, to de- Remember, worship is this. You must remember, worship is submission, which is service, which results in service unto God. But we must remember in reality that we only will serve or worship that which we deem or he who we deem worthy of such. And so again, the moment that we as, individual, as individuals or even as individual believers... The moment that we sin against God is a result of us not seeing God's worth and really replacing God's worth with self-worth and doing what we want or as we would see fit to do or be pleased to do rather than submitting to the Lord, recognizing He alone is worthy of such worship, such submission, such service. And then third, the reason as to why God would deliver us from sin only to enslave us to Himself is that God eternally determined to redeem man. (laughs) This is the eternal purpose of God in Jesus Christ, as Paul mentions throughout his epistles. He was determined to restore man back to a proper relationship and fellowship of service, which is worship again to him. And this was necessary, of course, because we realize that man is, is guilty before God, and he's a sinner, and that he is inherently sinful by nature. And yet God says, not only I will free you, but I will also enslave you to myself. By the way, throughout the scriptures, often you'll see... For instance, Paul may write, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. And that word service or servant is that a, a doulos, which actually is slave. It's actually saying, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. So he was enslaved 
captive to the Lord Jesus Christ. And being redeemed by God, however, obviously, through Christ, is the greatest of all freedom. In John 8, 36, Jesus himself said, If the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. However, at the same time, this freedom is not freedom to live as unto ourselves. And that's what's often taken when considering the words of Christ and this freedom that is experienced in redemption. Most people think of freedom from sin. And I'm thankful for that. And I'm thankful that God has freed me from the bondage of sin, from the judgment and wrath uh, and condemnation that sin would bring upon me. I'm so grateful that God has, has done that work, delivered me from sin. But there's another side of this that is often apparently overlooked by many, not all, but by many, and that is not considered or is not get the same amount of praise and thanks is not seemingly given to God for this part or this element of this deliverance as that of being freed from sin as one might claim to be. So most people, again, think of freedom being that from sin. But Jesus said this, if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Now, that's an interesting statement, especially consider those to whom he spoke. Jesus spoke to religious leaders, to Jesus says, you know, you're not, they, they say we be free because we be of our, our, our Abraham, right? We are children. But the reality is not, is that they weren't free. They were bound and in bondage to their own selves, to their own sin, and to their own religious making. And yet Jesus says, if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. So these were not men, let's consider whom he speaks. He's not those who were necessarily involved in adultery, or those who were necessarily involved in all types of fornication or immorality. He was not speaking to those who were at least apparent from all visibility and, and uh, from all that would appear to be, uh, to those who were drunkards or to those who were abusers of, of, different, uh, of different things that might be available during that day. He's talking to the religious right. He's talking to those who were the... the, the honored, respected among the people. And he says, if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Well, he's not, of course they were sinful, but he's not talking about the drug addicts and the drunkards and those who are caught up in adultery and living that type of lifestyle necessarily, though that would be true as well. But that's not who he's speaking to. So when he speaks to these and makes such a statement, what is it they are, how are they free? Well, I believe that brings us to the other truth of this deliverance or this redemption so we are enslaved to sin god delivers us and buys us out of of sin's bondage in redemption unto himself but here is the real freedom the freedom is not merely or only that of being delivered from sin but also of being free unto righteousness because those pharisees no matter how hard they tried you know what they could never do They could never do righteously or righteousness. They appear to be doing But what did Jesus even say about that? Let's consider it for a moment. He said to them, remember, you are as whited sepulchers, as graves, full of dead men's bones. So on the outside, it looked good, it looked clean, it looked right, but they were filled with rot. 
And there was no righteousness going to come out of them or from them because there was no righteousness in them. And so Jesus says to them, if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Not just from sin, but unto righteousness. The one thing that the Pharisees truly desired, I believe, is that they wanted to have something of righteousness they could present to God. Here I am, God. Here's my righteousness. Remember what Paul said as we've studied in Philippians just recently, as we went through our, our study of Philippians? Remember what Paul says? He says that all those things that were gained to me, I counted loss. Remember? For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, knowing that righteousness comes not by the law, but it's the righteousness of Christ. Again, Paul was saying, here's my resume, and I could, I want, man, I, I counted all of these things as righteousness, which I would give unto God and say, here's my righteousness, Lord. And yet he says, then I begin to understand, wait a minute, through the revelation of Jesus Christ, through my redemption, through God purchasing me unto himself, he delivered me from the slavery of sin and slavery of self-righteousness to then live in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that is something that no Pharisee can do. That is something that no unbeliever can do. That is something that no churchgoer can do. That is something that no Baptist can do. That's that which only Christ can do in and through us, through redemption, through God restoring us. Romans 6, 6-18, let's read through this. It's quite lengthy, but I think this is important to remember and understand. Knowing this, Paul So sin is destroyed, this body of death, if sin is destroyed. Then he says, verse 7, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Here's that freedom. I'm free from sin, free from its judgment, free from its, its bondage, free from its power. Verse 8. Now, if, chapter 6 of Romans, verse 8. Now, if we be dead with Christ, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. And that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves. Jesus Christ, he's not talking about unbelievers. As believers in Jesus Christ, do not allow sin to reign. Why? Because we are, we are free from sin. So don't allow it to reign when you're free from it. He said, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof, verse 13. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Now notice something here. He says you are their servants. You're either a servant unto sin, unto death, or unto uh, righteousness, unto life. Here's the reality. Service is what? Worship. So that which you worship is that which you serve. That which you serve is that which you worship. He goes on to say, verse 17, But God be thanked, servants of sin, made from the heart, at verse 18. Servants of righteousness. Isn't that interesting? Being made free from sin, 
You're, you were enslaved to sin, you're freed now from sin, only to become now enslaved to righteousness. We see redemption mentioned throughout the Scriptures. Romans 3.24 says, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.30. But of Him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Ephesians 1.5-7 having predestinated us into the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the grace he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of his grace. Hebrews 9, 11, and 12. But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So although the word redemption carries a sense of deliverance, as does the word salvation, or, or biblically, as biblically, more than deliverance alone, that is, redemption is more than just deliverance. For it is through redemption that we are purchased back by God, meaning that our spiritual debt is paid through the provision of Jesus Christ, who is offered by God as the ransom for our sin to satisfy His holy and righteous demands. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 6, 20. Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? Bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You are bought with a price. Do you understand what that means? It means you are redeemed. Redemption is being bought with a price, bought by God, through the redemption, through the sacrifice, through the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. So redemption is necessary due to the fact that men are indebted to God for their sins. Men are sinful. Man's debt to God is twofold, and I've shared this with you before. First, there is uh, man's indebt- is indebted to God concerning original sin. Original sin is attributed to Adam, of course, due to his unbelief, demonstrated by his disobedience in the Garden of Eden. And due to Adam's sin, the sin nature is now passed unto every human being. Romans 5.18 says clearly, Therefore, by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of the one free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. And so, original sin condemns us. You say, well, I wasn't in the Garden of Eden. I didn't commit that sin. Adam did. But you are born now into a, into a perverse bloodline. You are born into a tainted bloodline. You are born into a, a, a world that is cursed by sin. Adam and Eve were now, uh, had received, or were under the curse of God. Then God provided for them, of course, and I believe, through the, and redemption, through the, the shed blood of the animal that he sacrificed on their behalf to clothe them. And so we recognize this, but yet man was still guilty all the same, and therefore we are guilty by our very natures, Um, the sinful nature of man, that is. And so condemnation comes upon all. Why? Well, we've all sinned, of course, but more importantly, the reason that we all sin as we sin and will continue to is because we have within us the blood of Adam in his fallen state. There's another reason man is indebted to God over what would be theologically referred to as actual sins. Actual sins, again, are the manifestations of unbelief demonstrated by our disobedience to God. These are sins which you are responsible for. (laughs) 
which you have committed, which you are guilty of yourself, regardless of Adam. And let me remind you of something as well. You've done just as Adam did, and I would have done just as Adam did. We know one reason we know that to be true. Without You say, I don't know. Absolutely we know that to be true. Here's why. God has an eternal redemptive purpose and plan, and man would fall. So if it would have been you, guess what? You would have fallen because God's going to redeem. God's going to prove that and show and demonstrate and manifest man is insufficient, man is incapable of having a relationship or even maintaining a relationship with him. Notice this. Adam and Eve had a relationship with God. They weren't trying to achieve a relationship with God. They already had one. And yet they were not capable of maintaining that relationship in a perfect environment. So how much less capable are we of achieving that relationship in a world that is cursed by sin and in bodies which bear the sin of Adam in this sinful nature? And yet men continually attempt to do so. So what, is, what are we being taught in all this? Well, obviously we're being taught God is showing us, revealing, that we are insufficient in every capacity and that Jesus Christ, God's provision, is all-sufficient in every capacity. So what man could not maintain, he obviously cannot achieve, and that which man could not achieve and could not maintain is only going to be achieved and maintained by God through Christ. Who will stand before God? And ever say, just uh, let, let, me, let me digress for one moment. Who will stand before God and say, no, and say, who is going to stand before God and say, as he is eternally condemning them to the lake of fire, God, this is your fault? Who's going to say that? No one. Who is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and say, God, I'm here because of me. No one. No one. Are you seeing this? Man is guilty before God in his own right. And there's nothing he can do to fix that. But it's through God's provision and redemption, it's him doing what we could never do to bring us and redeem us back to himself. This is the beauty of redemption. And so now we are enslaved being set free from sin, which we were enslaved to sin, but now we are enslaved to righteousness. So historically speaking, redemption concerned a ransom being paid to deliver or free one who was in bondage. And there's no greater example or picture, I believe, of redemption in the scriptures in terms of Old Testament revealing the truth of the New Testament and redemption than that which we find in the book of Ruth. Ken Trevet commented concerning the book of Ruth, and he said, in the book of Ruth, there are scenes that are tragic, domestic, romantic, dramatic, historic, and prophetic. And I believe he's right. And he goes on to say, yet each scene is a mine filled with precious gems. Ruth is only one of two books in the Bible which we find named after a woman. Esther being one. And it's interesting, the contrast here. Esther was named after a Jewish woman which married a Gentile husband. While Ruth is a Gentile woman that married a Jewish husband. And in the opening verses of this book, we're given enough history of those involved within this account to draw some conclusions about them and the situations of their lives. And so I just want to 
uh, briefly go over a few of these with you by way of overview of this book. First of all, let's look at the circumstances. Look at verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. The word now in the first verse points us back to the previous book of Judges in reality because of Judges is an account of when the judges ruled in the land and among the people. And yet here you find it came to pass in those days when judges ruled. The book of Judges closes by stating this, Judges 21-25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Now, we understand that God did have a chosen king for Israel. Who was that chosen king? Old Testament, literal man living in the Old Testament. No. David. David was God's choice. In fact, the scripture says that Saul was the people's choice, but David was God's choice. So David was, and who is David though throughout? You never find this in relation to Saul. Who was David in relation to Messianic prophecy? He's the father or forefather of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? In fact, Jesus is referred to in the New Testament as Son of David, or even as David, when David shall reign upon the throne. Not talking about King David of the Old Testament. He's dead. Talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's never said about Saul and Jesus, obviously. So God had an intention for David to be king, and he did become king. But yet that was all, of course, a shadow of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the king. Not only of the Jews, but the king of kings, who reigns eternally. And yet in Judges 21-25, in those days, closing out the book, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Let, let me explain this to you. When there is no king, when Christ, the king of kings, is not the ruler to which we bow, then we are left in absolute utter chaos. And every man then will do what he thinks is right. Listen, I'll tell you one of the reasons you find, we find ourselves at, well, the reason we find ourselves as we do in our country, or in our world, in our country, in our churches, in our homes, is because people have made the greatest attempt, even those professing to know Jesus Christ, have made the great attempt to dethrone the only king who truly is king. Within their own lives, within their own homes, within their churches, within the country, within the world. Is it not true that even among believers there are many who are out to do that which is right in their own eyes? Isn't it true that there are times that you and I who do submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, who truly have a desire to follow after the Lord, whoever that may be, meaning whoever among us, not just those here tonight, but among those who are Christians, among those who are believers in Jesus Christ, who truly have a hunger and passion and desire and thirst after righteousness to know God, to know the Lord Jesus. Is it not still true that there are moments we do things that are right in our own eyes? Listen, the only reason that's going to be true is because we're not acknowledging there is a king. There is a Lord. There is a Redeemer. Scripture goes on to say, verse 1 of Ruth, that there was a famine in the land. Now, the previous conditions led to a famine in the land. God had warned Israel that, that he would judge the land because of sin, and it's quite evident here that the Lord was using famine to get the attention of his people. We find this to be foretold in Leviticus chapter 26, verses 18 through 20. And if you will not for all this hearken unto me, the Lord says, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. 
and I will break the pride of your power, and I will make you he- your heaven as iron and your earth as brass. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield her increase, neither shall the trees of the land yield their fruits. He's talking about famine here. The Lord still knows, obviously, how to get the attention of his people. Hebrews 12, we're told and reminded of this truth. Verse 6, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Now this is not the wrath of God. This is the love of God. But it's the correcting hand of God within the life of those he loves. Verse 11 goes on to say, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, listen to what he said, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. So the fruit of righteousness is the result of God's correction, which is done and performed out of his love. Not only is the providential hand, I believe this is very important to understand, because remember, we're moving from God's wrath being demonstrated throughout the book of Obadiah to now God's love being demonstrated throughout the account of Ruth. And not only is the providential hand of God working in times of our disobedience, but even in our disobedience, he is proving his love to us. And that's a great joy within the life of every believer. Again, do you, let me ask, okay, so you're not lost here. I think we've already covered this and we've concluded, all of us agree, I believe, there are moments in our lives in which we do that which is right in our own eyes, do we not? But even in those moments, does God not prove his love to us through his correction? Does God leave us out there? No. We are his redeemed. He's going to correct. He's going to bring us to himself. Number two, look at the characters. Chapter 1, verses 2 and 4. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, the name of his two sons Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem Judah, and they came into the country of Moab and continued there. Then verse 4. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth, and they dwelled there about ten years. And look at chapter 2, verse 1. And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. So here you find major characters within this, this account of Ruth. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name Elimelech means God is king. The leader of the home, the husband, the father was Elimelech. He was responsible to lead his family according to the law of God. He was responsible not only to provide for their physical well-being, but as well their spiritual. He started out right, obviously recognized God as king. This is his namesake. God is king. And the name of his wife was Naomi. The name Naomi means pleasant. Is it not true that when God is recognized as king, it's a pleasant result? (laughs) The name of his two sons, Malon and Chilion. The name Malon is that of sick, and the name Chilion is that of pining, that is frail and weak. Some believe or would say that these sons were a means of the chastening of God. It is believed that the Lord gave them these two sons in this weak condition to draw them back toward him, which would be, is very much so possible. We don't know that to be the case, but obviously not, definitely not beyond or outside the character of God to do so. For an example unto us. I think we also must recognize personally that it's important we realize and accept that the Lord may place some things in our lives we don't understand for the sole purpose of keeping us dependent upon Him and keeping our focus looking to Him. There are things in my life that have transpired, I promise you, I did not expect and that I would never desire 
But let me tell you what God has done through some of these things. He has used them to remind me of my dependency upon him and that he is sufficient where I am insufficient and that I am not capable of controlling all of this and handling all of this, but that he is faithful to work his purpose and plan. Verse 4 says, And they took what them wives of the women of Moab, the name of the one was Orpah. Then Orpah refers to that, the top of the head, the nap or back of the neck. It signifies that which is declining or stiff neck. And the name of the other, Ruth. The name Ruth means to drink one's fill, to be refreshed, and also that of a female companion. In chapter 2, verse 1, we read, And Naomi had a kinsman of her husbands, a mighty man of wealth of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. Again, Boaz is a shadow, a representation of the Lord Jesus. And as we look to, at his name, we find some interesting truths. The name Boaz comes from an unused root of uncertain meaning, Boaz, the, the ancestor of David, also the name of a pillar in front of the temple. Might we say again that the Lord Jesus Christ obviously can never be defined by, by human terms or man's terms. He's beyond our comprehension, beyond our ability to define. And also, he is the ancestor of David, and he is the pillar and cornerstone of the church. How fitting is it that Boaz's name would infer such as it does. Then the countries, chapter 1, verse 1, a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah. Bethlehem, Judah is referring to that of the house of bread. And this was a town in Palestine, which, of course, was in the promised land. Remember, the promised land is a type, not of heaven. I've heard people say that years ago when I was young, especially here. People talk about going into the promised land and crossing over land and the river of Jordan crossing over death, right? But here's the reality of it. The promised land was not without its problems. The promised land was not without its enemies, was not without its walled cities, was not without its disobedience among God's people. Think of this for a moment. So what is the promised land truly representation of? It's not representative of heaven itself. It's representative of us following after Christ in a world that is full of problems, full of all types of troubles, full of all types of opposition, and yet in obedience to God, dying to self, living unto Christ. So in reality, the promised land is representation of the Christian life being lived in victory. And then they went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name Moab refers to a land on the other side of Jordan. I said, remember, death, dying to self, going on in the victorious Christian life, walking with God, following after Christ. The Lord gives us a peculiar description of, the, of uh, Moab in, in Psalm 109, or 108 verse 9, when he says, Moab is my wash pot. That's an interesting description, isn't it? This gives reference to a place that God loathed or he hated. And it's interesting, we won't get into all of this this evening, but in conclusion, let me say, it is interesting that you see Elimelech, Naomi, Malon, Chilion, you see them moving from Bethlehem, Judah, back across the Jordan to the other side to the land of Moab, God's wash pot. So moving from, now listen, God was judging or chastening his people. The famine was there. Why was the famine there? Why did God allow the famine to be present? He did that because of Israel's disobedience, as we see in Leviticus. And they did, as Judges concludes, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. 
So of course God's going to chasten and God's going to correct and God's going to judge. But rather than resting and depending upon God's faithfulness to preserve them, rather than repenting or looking to the Lord, turning their focus and attention back to Him, Elimelech looks out into Moab and says, hey, it's bad here, it's better there, let's go. But then we see throughout the book, of course, in the account, that that led to nothing good for Elimelech himself or his sons. But then in all of this, even in all that was happening, and even note this, this is of great theological significance. Even in the midst of rebellion against God, God was fulfilling His redemptive purpose and plan. Because had Elimelech not gone to Moab, there would have never been Ruth married into the family of Elimelech and Naomi going back to Bethlehem, Judah, where there was a redeemer, Boaz, who was going to make right all that had been wrong. And so we see just a glimpse into Redemption's love story as we consider this overview of book. Just considering some of the main things. We'll get into this, Lord willing, next week and begin to really unpack what's here within this book. But a great book with a great reminder of God's great redemption and the great Redeemer, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.